Romans chapter 1. We are going to start in verse 18. There is some great teaching in this passage. Here we go. Romans 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Now, when I say that there is some deep teaching in this, I'm not kidding. That deep teaching began when time began. When the Lord created mankind, mankind knew him. It is a mistake to believe that we began in idol worship and then evolved into an understanding that would lead to the worship of Jehovah God. It is exactly the opposite of that. Mankind, time began in knowing God. And then, according to the book of Romans, we traded the truth, meaning all of mankind, traded the truth for a lie, and idol worship followed. The evolution is opposite of what a lot of people believe. Now, when God revealed himself to mankind, he did it in such a way that we would always know him. We would always know him. Romans chapter 1 verse 20 actually helps us understand how that works. I'm going to put it up on the screen for you. Take a look here. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. God has revealed himself through all of creation. Let's take a little closer, critical look at this passage. I'm actually going to put it up on the TV just so I can point at it for you a little bit here too. Take a look at what the Apostle Paul says. For his invisible attributes, God's invisible attributes. Now, think real close about that. Think very critically about that. Things that we cannot perceive with the physical eye, God has revealed through creation. Two of those invisible attributes, in particular, God has revealed to us. Here they are. We're going to go to that next slide. His eternal power and divine nature. Those are the two things that Paul would call out as he writes this passage as moving from the realm of invisible to visible through all of creation. Because God wanted mankind, all of mankind, every person that makes up mankind, past 
and present to know who he is. So he has revealed his eternal power and his divine nature in such a way that we can see him and we can know him and experience him. Man, that is something. When you think about the creator of all of the universe, the creator of everything around us, the creator of us, the creator of salvation, the bringer of salvation, loving us enough and desiring relationship with us enough that he would reveal these two things to us so that we can not only perceive them but know them, that's remarkable. God's eternal power and his divine nature. Now, I want to take both of those and explore them at a deeper level. We're going to start with God's eternal power. As I was studying this past week, I spent some time with John MacArthur, wonderful preacher John MacArthur, and he and I, as we were making our way through this, were thinking like preachers do. And that led me to needing to talk to some other people. So I found my way to Josh Erickson and Matt Hooten, and they took things out of the realm of preacher speak and brought it into every man speak so that the things that I was thinking along with MacArthur could become understandable. And I want to walk you through some of the things that the four of us, albeit John MacArthur was not actually physically present, the four of us were exploring. And the easiest way to do that is to just walk you through this. So I'm going to read to you. Here we go. At any given time, there are an average of 1,800 storms in operation in the world. The energy needed to generate those storms amounts to an incredible 1,300,000,000 horsepower. I asked Josh how much energy the Libby Dam can produce measurable in ways that we can understand. He said a lot of things that I couldn't understand. But finally, he boiled it down to this. 600 megawatts, or 804,000 horsepower. That's what the Libby Dam can produce. Now compare that to this. Matt Hooten is a master road builder in our church. I asked him about the largest piece of earth-moving equipment that he has. He said it runs about 500 to 550 horsepower and burns roughly 180 gallons of fuel in a normal shift to keep it moving. Just one of those storms that we mentioned earlier, producing a four-inch rain over an area of 10,000 square miles, would require, this is incredible, 640 million tons of coal to evaporate enough water for such a rain. To cool those vapors and collect them in clouds would take another 800 million horsepower of refrigeration, working night and day for 100 days. If the sun's radiated energy could be converted to horsepower, it would be the equivalent of 500 million, million, billion horsepower. Isn't that something? The earth is 25,000 miles in circumference, weighs 6, six septillion, 588 sextillion tons. Now, you may have never heard of numbers that big, and you're not quite sure how to wrap your mind around it, so let me put it up on the screen for you. Here it is again. The weight of the world, one, not one septillion, 500, or no, I'm sorry, six septillion, my fault, Terry, 588 sextillion tons. That's what the earth weighs, and it hangs unsupported in space. 
It spins at 1,000 miles per hour with absolute precision and careens through space at 1,000 miles per minute in an orbit 580 million miles long. Now, one last thing. A water molecule is composed of only three atoms, but if all the molecules in one drop of water were the size of a grain of sand, they would make a road one foot thick and a half mile wide that would stretch from Los Angeles to New York. I went back to Matt again and asked him to put that in measurable terms for us. So I said, how much asphalt would it take to pave that same road? Here's what he came up with. A road from L.A. to New York City would be 2,790 miles long or 14,731,200 feet. At 12 inches thick and 2,640 feet wide, it would require 2,819,551,680 tons of asphalt. If a paving crew was putting down 350 tons per hour, it would take 8,055,862 hours to pave it, or 201,396 40-hour weeks. That's how long it would take, and that's one drop of water. That is one drop of water. Isn't that incredible? That is God's eternal power becoming visible to us. One of his invisible qualities becoming visible. But in order for us to wrap our head around it, we have to move it into other terms so that we can understand it. God's eternal power is evident through creation. And it just happens that we live in a place in northwest Montana where creation is all around us in such a way that we stand in awe of the Creator. But how often do you stop and think about what it takes to sustain the creation? That's it. That's it. Those types of things become evidence for who God is. Those types of things show us His eternal power. Every time the clouds roll in, when there's a rainstorm, when the sun rises in the east and sets in the west, when the snow begins to pile up, all of that is evidence of God's eternal power as we see it through the lens of His sustaining power. God's ability to sustain His wonderful, wonderful creation. But Paul doesn't leave it there. He says it's not just his eternal power that God has made visible to us. He has also shown us his divine nature. When I was studying this week, I asked Dr. Luke to help me out with that. And really, I can't add anything to what he says that would give it any more depth. Listen to this. He's going to show us how God's divine nature becomes a witness. Pay close attention. Acts chapter 14, verse 8. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking. And Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. 
Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. By the way, let me stop there for just a second. I want you to see how the Bible says that Greek mythology predates the New Testament. Greek mythology goes all the way back. We can trace it really to Genesis chapter 6 if we try hard at all. So Greek mythology is mentioned in the Bible. Listen to this, verse 13. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Now let's stop there for just a second. I want you to see what the apostle Paul said standing in the middle of a Greek crowd about Greek mythology. This is how bold the Apostle Paul was. He was not on friendly territory when he made this statement. He stopped them right in their tracks and said, why are you saying these things about us? We are just men. Like you, we are just men. Why don't you turn your vision away from these vain things, meaning Zeus and Apollos, Greek mythology, and let your eyes fall on the living God? Because all of this mythology, all of those stories that you hold on to, they are pointless and purposeless. Turn your eyes to Jesus. Let your eyes fall on him because he is the living God. And then listen to what he says about him. Verse 16. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without, listen, witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrain the people from offering sacrifice to them. He gave witness through the rains. Those one drops that join together with multiple drops to become a rainstorm that we talked about just a few minutes ago. That's God's eternal power, the sustaining power, but it becomes a witness to his divine nature when we see that God gives us everything that we need to survive. Every good and pleasing thing comes from him. That's God's divine nature. When you are experiencing those good things, God's sustaining power, his eternal power that keeps the earth spinning on its axis, and you rise up in the morning, that again is part of God's eternal power, but the goodness that is poured out on you comes from God's divine nature because he knows what you need. He knows what you need more than you know what you need. He knew that you needed a savior and he sent his son. He knew that you needed his son because without him, the end is catastrophic. So he sent Jesus. His divine nature is fueled by love for you, for me, for all mankind. And it always has been. From the moment time began, God has revealed himself through these types of things. His eternal power and His divine nature, things that we might believe are invisible qualities, He made visible so that we could focus on Jesus. 
so that we could see God for who he really is and understand the depth of his love. Isn't that something? Isn't that something? Somebody say amen. That's pretty amazing when you think about how God did it. It is remarkable when you think about what he reveals to us, his eternal power and his divine nature. Now you might say that all sits out there as as cool things that God has revealed, but how does it touch a life, one single individual life? I want to show you. Everything that we've just talked about is not without point. We started a few weeks ago a, a sermon series on miracles and answered prayer and the presence of God. And this morning, I want to show you what some people would refer to as a miracle. Others would not go that far, but they would say that there are miraculous elements within the midst of the story. But what we discover as we make our way through it is that these two invisible qualities, God's eternal power and His divine nature, both become visible through the midst of what we are about to see. Join me in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 5, will you? Luke, chapter 5, starting in verse 1. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, which is also the Sea of Galilee. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. They came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. In order to understand this, we're going to have to do so through a couple of different things. The first is context. The second is critical reading. So let's start with context. It is widely accepted that the best fishing on the Sea of Galilee, in fact, almost all fishing on the Sea of Galilee, is done at night, and it's done with nets in the shallows. That's where everyone goes to catch fish. I've eaten fish from the Sea of Galilee. More than likely, it was caught at night because everyone knows that's how you fish on that particular body of water. So Jesus comes to them when they are putting their nets up. In context, Peter would actually say to him, we are, we're pretty wiped out. In fact, the Bible says that Peter says, we have tarried all night. When you take that term, tarried all night, and look at it within the Greek language in order to get the context, here's what it means. We are wearied. We are wearied. We are at the end of ourselves. We tarried all night long, and we didn't catch any fish. It is easy for us to believe that this wasn't the first night that that had happened. 
We are weary because this has been going on night after night after night. We didn't catch any fish. And now we're putting away these nets, and that's its own laborious experience, labor-intensive experience. We're having to try to clean these things, get them folded up and put away so that we can go home, catch a few hours sleep, maybe grab a little something to eat before we do that, and be back out here tomorrow night to get the boat set up and go do it again. We are wearied. We are worn out. We are at the end of ourselves. And here you are, Jesus, telling us to put back out into the water. But they go. And part of the context that we have to look at is why they went. Why would they so quickly go? It is possible that they had just heard Jesus say some things that so inspired them that there was no question left in their mind they were going to row out into the deep water. Which, by the way, if you remember in context, the fish are not only caught at night, they are caught in the shallows. And Jesus is saying, I want you to row out into the deep water. So what would cause them to do this? Scholars are somewhat divided on this story. There are some people that would tell you that it is the exact same account captured in Mark chapter 1. And others would tell you that they are separate accounts. Let's turn to Mark 1 and I'll show you what I'm talking about, starting in verse 16. I tend to fit in that second category, though there is no division among us. If you believe that they are the same account, that's fine. If you believe they're separate accounts, that's fine. Just as you look for context within Luke chapter 5, by seeing these as separate accounts, some of the context begins to fall into place. Listen to this, verse 16. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea. For they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Now, if like me, you believe that these are separate events, it helps you find the context necessary to understand Peter's willingness to row out into deep water. It may very well be that Jesus had come by the Sea of Galilee on the shore another time and said, come follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. And they went with him and they saw some of the things that he could do and they listened to some of his teaching and then they returned to Capernaum where they fished some more. And then here comes Jesus a second time, and he climbs into Peter's boat, and Peter doesn't blink. Peter doesn't do what most of us would do and say, hey, 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 what are you doing getting on my boat? We're just cleaning this thing up. This is the first time I've ever seen you, and I'm not even sure who you are. What are you doing getting on my boat? He didn't blink. He didn't hesitate. Jesus got on the boat, and Peter even willingly rode him out just a little ways so that he could speak with his voice being amplified over the shallow water. There's no hesitation. So there had to have been experience prior to this that would have set the stage for that. That's why I believe that they are separate stories. But again, if you don't, that's no problem. This isn't a test of fellowship. It's just how we read the scriptures. It does seem like there is a difference between them that gives some context for why Peter would do what he did. But after Jesus was done teaching and he said, let's row out. And Peter said to him, but we have tarried all night long. We're at the end of ourselves. We don't have enough to go fishing again. 
but because you say so, we will. It takes us out of the realm of context into some critical study in order to see what we need to see. And for that, I called on some help again. Three people in particular. I wanted to look at this through the lens of fishermen's eyes. So I talked to Steve King, and I talked to Dave Blackburn, and I talked to Jared Lampton, and I asked each one of them to give me their perspective on this story. It was so intriguing to me that each one of them came from a different angle. Let me start with Steve King. Steve started by looking at this whole account through the lens of the fish. And this is what Steve said. He said the fish were already in the sea. They were already in the water. It isn't that Jesus had to create more fish. The fish were all there. Steve and I, as we continued to talk, batted around a number of different things until finally he made this statement. He said the real miracle is not the catching of the fish. It was the positioning of the boat. Because when you stop and think about it, for Jesus, a carpenter, to tell Peter, a career fisherman, I want you to go out into the deep water, well, that took an act of faith in and of itself because they caught fish in the shallows. And then for Jesus to say that to Peter in the middle of broad daylight was really something because they caught the fish not only in the shallows but at night. Remember the context? And here Peter's saying, all right, I'll do it. But I really like this from Steve. He says, at no point did Peter say, well, if we're going to do this, we're going to go to my favorite spot. I'll take you to where I've caught fish before. They just rode out into the deep water where Jesus told them to go, and he was obedient to it. The truest miracle, according to Steve's perspective, was the positioning of the boat. Now, Dave, when he responded to this, Dave looked at it through the lens of Jesus's humanity, which was highly intriguing in and of itself. So he's looking at the human side of who Jesus was. And don't ever forget that Jesus was both divine and human. For those 33 years, he carried both attributes, the divine and the human. So Dave was looking at this from the human lens. And he said, in lakes, fish swim in schools. So it may very well be that they detected through their lateral lines, this is where he was getting a little bit into the Josh Erickson realm. He was saying things that I didn't understand, but I didn't want to acknowledge to him that I didn't understand it. So I just went, yeah, that's right. So Dave was saying, the fish may have detected through their lateral lines the boat, and that's why they came to the boat. Or this is where he took it up a whole other notch in talking about the humanity of Jesus. He said it may be that Jesus looked out onto the water and he saw a change in color, understanding that there were fish there and that's why they stopped where they did. Or maybe he saw birds in the air over those fish and that's why Jesus went to where he did, looking at it through the lens of Jesus' humanity. Highly intriguing to see this miracle from different perspectives. And then there was Jared. Jared thought about it for a while and sent me an email yesterday morning. And really the best way to share that with you is to read his email. I want you to hear what he has to say. Here it is. This is from Jared Lampton. Peter and his companions had been fishing all night and had just finished washing their nets. I'm assuming they were using some sort of handmade gill net 
We use gill nets a lot at work, and we almost always set them overnight because that's when they are by far the most effective. The fish can't see them. Even if you don't catch any fish in the net, it still comes in dirty, sometimes full of algae and diatoms that get stuck on it. And they can take a lot of effort to clean, even with detergent and running water. We don't have to clean all our nets, but we have different kinds that if you don't clean them, they'll be damaged and won't work as well. I'm guessing they were washing their nets because if they didn't, they could rot and not last as long. I can't imagine how much time and effort it took to make these nets by hand, either time, either time consuming or expensive. So Jesus, not a fisherman, telling them to put their net back out during the day when it had just been cleaned after fishing it all night must have sounded ludicrous to those guys, borderline insulting. Nobody likes to essentially be told, hey, you're doing it wrong by someone with less experience. Fishermen can be pretty defensive of their tactics and methods, and I imagine that's particularly true with a commercial fisherman, especially someone like Peter. I guess the only reason Peter put the net back out was because he had already had a glimpse of what Jesus could do, or maybe something Jesus said in his speech from the boat got Peter's attention. Either way, he was willing to give it a try because it was Jesus' request. He probably risked looking foolish to the other guys. I'm sure they were skeptical and didn't want to clean that net again. Their astonishment at the catch isn't surprising, not only because of the number of fish, but because it was during the day, probably unheard of. Seems to me Peter's reaction shows that he was very much humbled by the event. He had seen Jesus perform miracles before, but this one met him right in the middle of his business, probably revealing on a deeper level who he really is and who Jesus really is. He caught a glimpse of the true nature of things, explains why they left everything and followed him. He finishes by saying, I wonder what they did with all the fish. Good question. wonder what they did with all the fish. So Jared takes a look at it from the lens of a fisherman. I'm just a preacher. And so a lot of those things, they don't necessarily resonate with me. And though I like to fish, I would never call myself a fisherman. The three guys that I talked to have forgotten more about fishing than I'm ever going to know. So I just have to boil it down like this. The fish were the fish. The fishermen were fishermen. And Jesus was Jesus. But a miracle happened. A miracle happened in Peter's life. We can take all those other things in our critical understanding and our critical exploration of the passage and boil it down to this. A miracle happened in Peter's life and in James's life. And in John's life. And it happened when the eternal power and the divine nature of God came together. As I read it as a preacher, this is what I see. The real miracle had little to do with the eternal power, what happened with the fish. And it had a great deal more to do with the divine nature. It had everything to do with how Jesus met them, as Jared would say, in their business. They were wearied. They were worn out. They didn't have anything left except obedience and faithfulness. And they used both of those things and experienced a miracle. They used both of those things and experienced a miracle. So I was looking at that, I found myself in another passage of Scripture that I've been studying for a while through a different lens. I'll show it to you. It's also found in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19. 
starting in verse 1. He, meaning Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Now in order to understand it, we need both of those study techniques again. We need context and then we need some critical exploration. So here it is in context. Zacchaeus was a tax collector. He was not popular. Zacchaeus was rich. It means he was very good at his job. So he was really not popular. Tax collectors in those days were allowed to collect taxes whenever they wanted to collect taxes. It was done with a very broad pen. So they could go out and demand taxes almost at any time from people. And they did. And Zacchaeus seems to have been very, very good at it. When other people saw Jesus going into Zacchaeus' home, they grumbled. You can imagine that Zacchaeus heard what they had to say. It wasn't the first time he'd heard people take shots at him. Oh, they've gone into, or he's gone into the house of a sinner. That's who Zacchaeus is, worthless puke. That's the kind of stuff people were saying about him. Can't believe Jesus would go there. So Zacchaeus is in a dead-end job, going nowhere fast, alienated and isolated from all the people that he lived around. More than likely, he had few relationships, and those that he did have probably were not good. That's context. And then we get into the critical side of it. The Bible says, Luke says, that Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost in regard to Zacchaeus. Traditionally, we use that verse to talk about the unsaved. Jesus came to seek and to save the unsaved. And certainly that is true. Certainly that is a great application of that passage. But if we look at it in context, Zacchaeus was lost on many levels, on many levels. And the Bible says Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. Went into his house, spent some time with him, and Zacchaeus became a new man because Jesus came to seek and save that which was lost. When Peter says to him, we have tarried all night, we are weary, worn out at the end of ourselves. And Jesus brought that miracle to them Things changed. Things changed. Their life changed dramatically. When he said, we are wearied and worn out, he could have also been saying, we're broke. We just need to rest because we've got to be back out here to fish tonight because we have bills to pay. And Jesus took care of the bills. It could be that they were saying, we are at the, the point of wondering whether we ought to continue fishing even. 
things didn't go well last night. Maybe they haven't gone well on a lot of other nights and it's, it's just tough. We know that he was discouraged. And Jesus said, just row your boat out a little ways. And when they did, in their obedient faithfulness, God responded to them. Did you see what he did? Did you see what he did? He broke the nets. That's how Jesus responded. So many fish, he broke the nets. They were worried about cleaning the nets. Now the nets are broken. So many fish, the nets were broken. That catch probably set the market for the entire region around the Sea of Galilee. When they got them back, their bills were paid. They were taken care of. But did you see what the Bible never said? The Bible never said they mended those nets. The Bible never said that they went to work on them, that they cleaned them and they fixed them and they put them away so that they could fish the next night. What the Bible says is they left them and they left their boats. They were done. Career change came because Jesus came to seek and to save that which was weary and at the end of itself. And when he found them and they listened, he changed their lives. And Jesus still does the same thing. Jesus still does the same thing. I want you to know this. And this is what Steve was talking about, Steve King. The miracle has little to do with the fish. That's why Jared would say, I wonder what they did with the fish. I wonder how much they sold them for. I wonder how much that came up to. That's because the miracle had little to do with the fish. The miracle had everything to do with the boat, the positioning of it, getting out into the deep water, even though it made no sense. Even though popular wisdom would have said, Peter, are you outside your ever-loving mind? Go home and go to bed. What are you doing, man? You know you're not going to catch any fish this afternoon. It's broad daylight. And what are you doing out there? It's 400 feet deep. You're going to use a net to try to catch fish there? What are you doing? Didn't matter. It didn't matter. He rode out to where Jesus said to go. If you're at the end of yourself, and you're weary, and you've toiled all day and all night, and that's been going on for a long time, and you're discouraged, and you don't have much left, well, you're in good company. Peter and James and John were right there. They were partners on this boat. They were right there. And then Jesus found them. And they were obedient and faithful. And they moved their boat. Maybe, maybe you need to move your boat. Even when Jesus tells you to move it someplace that makes no sense, move your boat. Do what he tells you to do. Don't surrender to the discouragement. Move your boat. And when you do, start looking for the miracle. Start looking for the response. And when your nets are broken, don't get frustrated. Celebrate it. Move your boat. Sometimes miracles happen because we willingly do what the Lord told us to do. Move your boat. Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. If you're lost, move your boat.